0: And welcome back to another Pink Bike Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Levy, and I've got a question for you to start off episode number 74. What's the most important ingredient required to make mountain biking a good time? We love to talk about the fancy bikes and gear, but at the end of the day, I don't think it really has much to do with it. And while it probably helps to have some friends to ride with, plenty of us do a lot of our riding solo and by ourselves. So maybe it's not all about the company either. I can definitely have a great time by myself or riding some old crappy bike with a bald rear tire. Just as long as the trail is good. Well, I don't mind doing my time on a gravel road to get to the good stuff, it's that good stuff. It's the single track that's the reason why we all ride. A 5,000-foot steep-ass climb on a gravel road in the blazing summer heat while wearing oversized knee pads and riding an overweight trail bike with downhill tires and an idler pulley? Kaz, that sounds like just another one of your days out on the bike. (laughs) But we are happy, (laughs) right? Kaz, we're happy to do that, though, if the single-track descent is good at the top. So today's podcast is all about the trails. We're going to talk about the trails that each of us love and why, the factors that make a good trail so good, and a less trail maybe a lot less good, why we owe everything to the people that build trails, and some of the trail features that either blew our minds or maybe scared the shit out of us. So as usual, I've got the other mic here as well. Casimir, is there one trail feature that comes to mind if I were to ask you what the sketch, sketchiest stunt you've ever seen is? You don't have to tell me where it is or anything, but what stunt comes to mind? Oh, man, I've seen so many sketchy stunts over the years. I mean, if you just hike around into the North Shore,
1: you can find the relics from back in the day. And like when we started riding them, they were already kind of rotten and and like they're kind of towards the end of their lifespan. So I feel like right around then, like 06 to 08 North Shore, that was like peak sketchy because they weren't new anymore. so They're starting to fall apart. So, yeah.
0: Do you remember riding or I should say maybe walking The Flying Circus, which is long gone, but a classic trail up in North Vancouver. Yeah. And looking at that stuff, like the Ridiculator, that teeter-totter, it was like roughly, I'm not sure exactly, but about 150 feet in the air and about one inch wide at a teeter-totter. It was so sketchy. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I never rode the Ridiculator, but I saw people ride it and just watching was so scary, like because they'd be riding it and their, their chain would skip and it was always like raining or something. And it was ridiculous.
0: Yeah. I didn't, I never rode that. Crazy stuff. So I've also got Alicia Leggett with us today. Alicia, is there a trail feature or stunt or jump or drop or something you've wanted to hit but haven't quite been able to let go of the brakes yet? What's what's the feature that's up next on your to-do list?
2: There's a spot I ride around here where it's not illegal, but it's not not illegal, if that makes sense.
1: That's where a lot of the best trails happen yeah. to be, I think.
2: <laughs> of yeah. course, it's it's a gray area. This feature itself is also... I'd say in a gray area of how I feel about it, it, it's kind of a boner log that goes straight up to just a stupid landing and it's the same size as a lot of other things there. It just is like, it just looks awkward. And I think that's why I'm, I've been fascinated by it for a few years and just seen it and always thought it looks a little bit stupid. I watched a good friend of mine like break his shoulder right next to there Oh, that's
0: never a good plan if you're wanting to hit that thing, Alicia.
2: Exactly. That's why I haven't done it. It's, I think it would be cool. And I also don't think it would be hard. But if it went wrong, it just wouldn't be great. And I'm not sure I care enough to really go for it.
0: You know, those boner logs, they take some commitment, don't they? It's not like you can just ride up and just stop at the end of some of them. You have to be like, well, I'm I'm going off this thing. How big is it?
2: Um, The drop's probably around 10 feet. Yeah. The landing is just, it's short. Like, you have to get it right. There's kind of a hole where before we were supposed to land, and then there's kind of a bump, and then there's kind of a, like, steep and fast run out. So if you do, do everything fine, which presumably you would unless you panic, but I panic sometimes, so.
0: And it's not the Pink Bike Podcast without the lift to my elevator, James Wait. Who's going to read the news? But first, James, what trail feature was the last one to take you down? What trail feature did you crash on last?
3: Oh, my last crash was in a traffic jam two nights ago. So, like a forward focus and a Toyota Prius, maybe.
0: Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> you were on your bike? Yeah, yeah.
3: I just forgot to unclip and did that comedy, like.
0: Oh, topple over um wait, wait. off-road you yeah. got hit by a car i like how just casually no, james i, I, like, hit hey, I got car. hit by a car
3: oh. i stopped next to the car and oh. fell into the car so uh,
0: oh. <laughs> too, many pints,
3: too many
1: pints at the pub there
3: yeah. pride more hurt than body on that one for sure um off-road oh. i do not probably some wood my uh, my strongest opinion is that mountain bikes and wood don't mix but i'm sure we'll talk about that more later
0: Yeah, we're going to get along on that one, James, 100%, especially when the wood is skinny. No good. (laughs) All right, but first we've got to get to the news. James, I think we're going to start off with a pretty fancy Canadian-made carbon fiber bicycle. Let's hear it.
3: Yeah, absolutely. We are one's arrival broke cover this week, um, and we now know it's carbon framed, it's a two-niner, and perhaps most exciting of all, it's 100% made in Kamloops. Um, We are one previously a component company, obviously offer wheels and cockpit components and stuff like that. So this is a huge step for them. And from my perspective, I mean, it looks like they've nailed it. I think this thing looks absolutely sweet. Um, Uses a dual dual link suspension system. Uh, It's got 150 millimeters of travel. The geometry looks to be bang on trend. Of course, there's a drawback to the Made in Canada tag and just like the Hope bike before it, that is the price. It starts at 8,900 USD. There's also an 11 grand version. Matt Beer has a first ride up, but Levy, I think you've ridden this as well. Is that right?
0: Briefly. Not not enough to call it a first ride, that's for sure. But I have looked at it and drooled at this thing a lot. Holy shit, James. (laughs) It's gorgeous in person. It has this like... uh, There's very little branding on it. It just says Arrival in little black letters down by the lower shock mount. And it has this like matte silver finish to the back that goes to bare carbon. It is gorgeous. Titanium hardware. Um, So yeah, the boys rode it at the field test in Sun Peaks just a few weeks ago. Uh, They're editing the videos and stuff. So wait for those to come out soon. Um, But they really liked it. Let's say that. I don't know how much else I could say. It pedals well. Um, it had the least amount of travel of any of the enduro bikes there, and it definitely wasn't the slowest in the time testing on the downs. Um, so yeah, I think, I'll, I think I'm going to stop there.
3: Um next up is a completely revamped Trek Roscoe. The Roscoe is one of those bikes that's designed to maybe bring newer riders into the sport or is there for intermediate riders. Um, but it was definitely due an update. The last one was still rolling on 27.5 plus wheels, and maybe even worse, it had a kickstand as well. So now it's been thoroughly modernized, 29-inch wheels, updated geometry, and the kickstand is no more. So what they've done is they've made their head angle 2.2 degrees slacker reaches a grown by 40 mil and it's now more in line with something like the Kona Hanzo or the Norco Torrent um what do you guys think of this one does it make a kind of a good starter intermediate option
1: yeah I'll correct you a little bit there it's not quite in line with the Hanzo or Torrent but that's actually a good thing I would say it's a I think it's got a 65 degree head angle where those two like the Hanzo ESD and the Torrent those have like 63 or 64 degree head angles so this is This is more like your all-around trail bike, and those ones are more like you're focused on the downhill hardtails. Um, But yeah, I think it's a good starter option. Like, they geometry looks pretty modern and regular and good, and they have prices that seem relatively reasonable. I mean, people kind of were pretty harsh in the comments, but it's hard to spec a bike as we all know for less than three grand, even a hardtail. So, you know, the they've got a twenty-seven hundred dollar model that comes with a Fox uh, Rhythm thirty-six slx xt drivetrain like pretty solid stuff so that's 2700 dollars. i think it's a good entry point or even someone that wants to kind of like go to the next
0: level from a department store bike up to something that'll last them a while james mentioned the hanzo and the torrent why might somebody consider a roscoe over the torrent or the hanzo chasm or how are they different i guess we should yeah say. i think it just comes down to
1: terrain it's, it's geometry um and the roscoe is a steeper head angle and not quite as long as those bikes i don't think so it's going to be easier to handle if you're going slower speeds kind of picking your way around probably riding the trails that most people tend to ride you know not everybody's heading out on a hardtail to ride the gnarly wildest thing around that's kind of a, it's a you know sub subcategory of hardtail rider so i think for your your average rider the the numbers on this look pretty good
3: Okay, moving on. Um, The Santa Cruz, earlier this year, they evolved the Brunson from 27.5-inch front and rear to a mullet bike, and Matt Beer has spent some time on one for a review. He said that it kept its playful character despite the bigger wheel, and that it was a pretty great all-rounder for the squamish riding he does. He did say it lacked a bit on square-edge hits, um, and I saw some comments saying that this is an
1: inevitability of a short-link design. Is
3: that something you agree with?
1: Uh, i don't know if i agree with that i think you can make these days you can make almost any suspension design do whatever you want you know we've seen single pivots and four bars and everything kind of all it seems like they're all kind of aiming for this magic sweet spot um so i don't necessarily attribute that square edge performance to the um the suspension design itself it could be something with a shock tune it could potentially just be the fact that it's a mullet you know if, if matt's been riding a lot of dual 29 inch wheel bikes and has one of those smaller rear wheel maybe he's noticing that um you know, or just, it could be the the curve of the bike, but I don't think it is a, a VPP necessarily a VPP trait over the years. Santa Cruz is really, their VPP
0: bikes don't really ride like they used to, which I think is for the better. Kaz, I didn't read this Bronson review. So for everybody else, including me that didn't read it, is this a new frame? Is it the same frame and they've just done a mullet? What's the deal?
1: It's all new frame, yeah. All it does bike. look the same as the other. From the side profile, it looks the same. But if you get up close, like the, the down tube is huge. It looks almost like it could hold the battery in there. So pretty massive. Almost down like you tube. could
0: put something in there, eh? Yeah, almost like that too. But there's no hatch. <laughs> there's no hatch. Hey, I have a I have a conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, Max actually suggested this. Our, our one of our filmers and the guy that edits this podcast. He's the guy that makes us sound good. Everybody. He said that these bike companies are debuting bikes with huge down tubes to get us to be okay with the look of e-bikes.
1: I don't think that's a, yeah. a bad conspiracy Kaz, theory. No, I'm Kaz, agreeing with it.
0: Oh, you don't think it's bad? No, I don't think it's a bad.
1: Yeah. Like if things start, like people like big burly looking things. That's all the whole reason we have 35 mil bars, even if they don't, if not any better, it matches yeah. the the look of the frame. So if you start kind of like bulking things up and then the whole lineup looks kind of cohesive then kaz
0: i'm surprised because you also you don't believe that all those hidden chambers and layers under the denver airport full of reptile people are a thing but you do believe (laughs) that big down tubes are a thing to get us used to e-bikes and how they look i
1: don't think that's like the real reason that could have all i mean maybe (laughs) yeah
0: i don't know i'm going with this one
3: I was speaking to someone in a bike shop the other day and they said they sell more e-mountain bikes in central London than they do any other type of bike and he said people just like the burly look of them they think they're like a a road warrior on them or something so yeah I think there's definitely something in that sort of burlier bigger look that that people like so yeah makes sense. Mm -hmm. So last week, we mentioned that Tom Peacock won the Olympics on Suntour suspension, and perhaps even more surprising that, than that, we noticed there was maybe something a bit more going on there. Alicia, you spotted that Tom might actually have been riding with electronic suspension, so we know Suntour have offered an electronic fork lockout previously, um, but we think this time um, it actually is the whole system. There was a little black box behind an unmarked black shock, um, and we think that could be something new going on there. Um What do you guys think was going on and um, what kind of advantage do you think he was looking for with the electronics?
2: I think just simplifying things, having one less thing to think about during the race is amazing, like cut down on extra energy that you have to spend and you have just a little bit more of an edge. So if you're trying to win the Olympics, everyone's looking for marginal gains. I think it's a great strategy.
0: Yeah, the electronic lockout does make a ton of sense for that kind of thing where those guys they don't want to have to think you know when more than you more than you have to when you're breathing through your eyeballs and your your heart rate's at 420 and you're putting out all the watts they just want to push a button lock the bike out i i suspect where live valve is live valve sort of reacts to the terrain i suspect this one is just a rear shock fork lockout combo so they just push the button and it'll lock the, the fork and the shock out. Because James, you mentioned they had that fork. I think it was the Axon ELD since so like 2011 or something. So it's not like new technology, but combining the two would be new. Um, and yeah, I wonder, Alicia, if maybe it is something live valve I I don't know if there'd be another, if we might see something else on the bike, a little computer box like we do with live valve or something. I'm not sure.
2: Yeah, there was a cool little computer looking box right behind the shock that I think maybe something Live Valvey.
0: Yeah, that'll be neat to see if it is something like that. It would be cool to have something different out there to compete with Live Valve. because um, there's definitely a place for that, for sure, especially in that sort of arena.
3: I did um I did think it was quite ironic that none of Suntour's actual sponsored riders got it, but Tom Pigcock, who's not officially sponsored by them and has only ever done two World Cup races, maybe three. Um got it but then I guess he proved he deserved it when he won so
0: oh yeah that's the Ineos Grenaders team isn't it James yeah they um they do that on the road too they have their sponsors I mean all of the big teams a a lot of times will use you know different components here and there but Ineos Grenaders they're known for that aren't they on the road kind of using stuff that's not sponsored so when they go mountain biking, do we know what they would use? Like, would we normally see a RockShox or a Fox or a Manitou Fork or something on the front of these bikes, James? Are we, do we know anything about that?
3: Um, yeah, Ineos, they don't have any mountain bike sponsors at all. So a Pinarello doesn't make a mountain bike. Um, so they had pretty much free choice. Tom went with BMC frame, Suntor suspension. He's used that at every round. I don't know if he has to. I'm, I'm sure he's... You know, Ineos have the money to buy whatever they want. They're the richest cycling team in the world, but that's what he's stuck with. Um, and yeah, it seems to be working out for him. So I'm sure he'll stick with it for a bit longer. Okay, one last thing. Um, and that is a bit of a follow up to the Amory Pierron story from last week. Um, we just wanted to update that Mockoff, um, they no longer sponsor the Common Cell 21 team, and they have funded an education program for Amory Piron. And um, they released a statement that said, we completely oppose any and all forms of racial stereotyping and we have taken direct action with the teams involved. Due to where the post originated, we've decided to cancel our sponsorship contract with Commencal 21. In addition, we have agreed with the Commencal mock-off team that Amory will undertake an education program on the subject, which we have insisted is paid for using our sponsorship money.
0: All right. And that brings us to our questions for episode 74 the first one is from chris rasco kaz i know you've done some endurance racing so i'm going to lean on you for this one he says hey team pink Bike podcast i'm doing a 12 hour race in september can you give me tips thanks a bunch
1: yeah uh 12 hours is a hard one because it's not 24 hours so it's like actually shorter like you you're not going to be sleeping or trying to like balance out your rest as much so i'd take a nap during that you might you can take too. a nap in there, but not like you're not gonna really stop. I mean, hopefully you don't. Yeah. So I would say don't go don't blow yourself up in the first few laps. Like take it slow and ramp up if you can or maintain. Because it is easy to get excited. Like the it's wild when you see people like sprinting off the line at a twelve hour race or like a twenty-four hour race. So yeah, just kind of figure out your pace on some do some bigger rides obviously before your twelve hour race. I guess that's coming up pretty soon. You get a month to train. Hopefully you're not off the couch in it, but if you are, that's awesome. But <laughs> I would try to take, you know, do a five-hour a five-hour ride or six-hour ride or something like that beforehand just to see what your body does figure out what you can eat because eating is kind of hard when you're riding for that long um some people don't their stomachs don't agree with whatever you put in it i can go forever on gas station food but some people need to have like special things but uh, yeah test out different drinking and diet habits while you're riding on some big rides and that should help you out Kaz, so you're saying don't go for the whole shot in my next endurance race Uh, You can, if you want, you get out front, (laughs) just, you gotta be able to maintain it for 12 more hours.
0: (laughs) All right. Our next question is from, oh boy, schlock, schlockage. Oh boy. Schlockins Schlockins. This one's for Brian Park. He's not here, obviously. So we're going to answer it for him. He says he's seen other people ride with a key tucked into their shoes, Kaz. Other weirdos out there. That's very strange. Question for everybody. Why don't more bike companies allow an a la carte build? So he wants to know basically why don't more bike companies let consumers just pick a frame and put parts on it that they want instead of buying a complete bike? Casimir?
1: I mean, it comes a lot of it just comes down to how complicated that gets and warehouse storage and just figuring it all out. If you just deciding which parts you need to have in stock to accommodate all of the riders. You know, some companies are better at that than others. I know like pivot has so many like drop down menus and kind of pick everything else where other companies just kind of basically have their preset packages. But at the end of the day, a lot of it is just logistics. And if you're most companies have their bikes pre-assembled in boxes in their warehouse facility. So if you allow people to start swapping stuff out, that makes
0: it a lot more tricky. So uh, that's why you don't see that as much. All right. Last question. This is from kook on a bike. He wants to know: Is anybody at Pink Bike riding the current bike of the year? He says a couple episodes back, we were talking about PB staff rides, and he seems to remember when an Optic won the bike of the year, Kaz, and you had one for a while. Uh, but it doesn't really come up all that often anymore. It doesn't seem like the Stumpy Evo has really ever been mentioned since it was awarded that. Um, what do you think, Kaz? You rode that Stumpy Evo a ton, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I did a bunch. I I have the. Turbo Evo now, which is basically the stumpy Evo with a motor. Just, does that count? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> I just it doesn't the electric bike of the year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the kook on a bike, there's no rule that says we have to ride the bike of a year. Like we pick it for a reason, it, and I still stand by. It. it was a great bike, but we just moved through so many bikes, and yeah. our personal bike may end up on just one that we, yeah, I just, there's tons of reasons why we end up on personal bikes, but I think, didn't Brian have one for a little bit? Yep. Yeah, he I had think one Brad too. Park had one. So uh, yeah, we all spend a bunch of time on it, but things move on, and we get new bikes because we can't stop trying new different bikes. Is it something you're actively thinking
3: about as you test bikes throughout the year? Like this is a potential bike of the year contender, or is it only something you kind of look at at the end of the year when you've got the hindsight of of all the bikes you've tested?
0: Yeah, I, I would say so. I think a lot of it comes down to like just bikes that that are here for review, and then Casimir ends up talking to me about them and we just we realized that we both are like blown away by something and yeah that's kind of how it comes about so we do always sort of keep them in the back of our minds during the year and we're always talking about bikes and comparing them uh what about you Kes?
1: yeah same thing i don't think i'm i don't consciously think about it a lot during the year it is definitely more of an end of year thing where i kind of just go back and figure out which one stood out the most and which one still maintained its relevancy you know it's easy to hop on a new bike and be blown away the first couple rides and it kind of starts losing its appealing like oh it's just kind of regular so um yeah and and bike of the year obviously it's another thing there's so many categories now and so much controversy it's it's a fun thing to put together and think about there's but there's
0: no right answer cat but there's no right
1: answer there's so many good bikes so just because we're not riding the stump jumper Evo doesn't mean it's not a good bike or you know anything like that
0: yeah one other thing that we always have to keep in mind too is a lot of times the bikes that we've ridden most recently are at the forefront of our mind So, you know, we ride a bike that comes out at the beginning of the year, it blows our mind, but then we ride something else that's closer to awards time. So we have to keep that kind of stuff in mind too, when we're doing this. All right, let's go from tech to trails. And I wanted to start this discussion by talking about some of our favorite trails and what it is about them that makes them so special. Casimir, it kind of sounds like bragging, but it's probably fair to say that our job has let us ride some ridiculous trails all over the world. I know we've both been lucky enough to ride all over the U.S., uh, the best parts of Canada, countless trails ac- across Europe. I know you've been down to South America to ride. Um, I know you've even been on some single track in Taiwan, Kazimer. So... After all that, is there a trail, one trail, that you still think about today that you're like, damn, I give up my last Tim Hortons donut to ride that trail one more time? I know I'm sort of putting you on the spot here, Kaz, but what trails are the top of your list? Top,
1: like if I could go anywhere right now and ride a trail, I might go down to New Zealand. There's a bike park, like the Wairora Wairora Gorge Bike Park. It's the one built by that crazy billionaire who's just like a, he's a vulture capitalist. I think he's the reason that Argentina went bankrupt or something, but there's a private <laughs> bike park down capitalist.
0: there. Vulture capitalist. That's good. <laughs> yeah.
1: He's not, doesn't seem like the best guy, but if you're listening, Mr. Bike Park billionaire guy, I think you're really nice and you should take me to all your private bike parks. But, <laughs> uh, but this place, the, the local trail organization, it is open to the public on certain days, And so, um, I've done some shuttle runs in there it's super cool. Like it's built, it was hand built by. Bunch of locals. I think even guys like maybe hey Win Masters and some other World Cup people helped on the construction of it. Um, and yeah, so they're all hand dug trails, or a lot of them, and just super fun. And it's in New Zealand, so I think if I could go anywhere right now, I'd go ride those trails.
0: Wait, wait, wait. So can you just spell this out for me? This is a private bike park. Yeah, it's a private in bike New Zealand. Park
1: in new zealand i think it gets i think each run is about three thousand vert they do they shuttle it with trucks there's no like a chairlift but you shuttle it and you can book it basically and get you can can get tickets and still go but originally it's just built by this guy uh we could probably do a whole another podcast on his stuff but basically he has bike parks for himself around the world but this one is open to the public in some extent and you can go check it out and uh
0: yeah So what is it that makes it so special? Is it the fact that it's in New Zealand and it's a privately owned and built bike park? Or is it something about the trails that makes it so good, Kaz?
1: I think it's a trails because it because it is a bike park, or at least you're shuttling. So you kind of expect it to be, you know, wide flow trails, but it's not really like that. They're pretty techie, like super cool lines. And the way they're built is everything goes pretty naturally, like you can hit stuff blind. But if you start looking around, you'll see lots of little extra like bonus options there's always like a little lip or a little pre-jump where you think there would be and i think that's a testament to the guys that built it it's like these world cup racers or like local shredders built it for everybody but then also for themselves so then there is like little features like oh that should be something like oh no it's already there somebody put that lip where it should be so uh, yeah it's a pretty special place it's cool
0: wow and is there is there one specific trail that you're into or is it it's just like the zone this is where you would like to go ride yeah. I would just go ride there. I just like
1: it. Uh, no, I can't think of one trail off the top of my head. I've only been there twice or maybe two or three days total there, but, um,
0: yeah. I've only been to this private bike park in New Zealand two or three times.
1: Everybody <laughs> you can go. It's not fully private. It's not like full special treatment, but it, cause you can like, everyone can go there. I'm pretty sure you just have to like sign up and book a day, but originally it was
0: fully private. Yeah. What a life we live. eh? I know it's rough. Yeah. Jeez. James, have you heard of that place?
3: Yeah, I feel like I've I've heard of it. Um, yeah, I didn't realize it was open. Now I, I just heard this guy who has these private bike parks, and I was like, "That's that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool." But yeah, um, I'll add it to the bucket list.
0: I think PB needs some sort of like staff day there or something like that. I think he's building
1: maybe another one closer to PB's headquarters. Oh potentially. oh shit!
0: <laughs> yeah. So I was going to save this question for a little bit later, um, but let's talk about trails at bike parks for a minute. Kaz, you and I, we have Whistler just up the road, so we're obviously super spoiled with that, especially their jump lines. And I want to talk a little bit about trail character. And one of the things on my list of traits that a good trail has is consistency, you know? But when you go to other resorts... A lot of times, especially with the jump lines, do you guys find that they're inconsistent at bike parks?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you've been to
0: Whistler, then you're spoiled for sure. Like Whistler makes you think
1: that everything's gonna be perfect and then you go somewhere else. Like I've been to a bike park I feel like it was in France. Maybe it was even Chatel, but there's a trail where you're just riding and you're like, these are good. Like I got all these jumps. And then all of a sudden you're, there's like a full on creek gap with no sign or anything. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> like, it's so good. I love it. But it's also like, and if that was Whistler, there'd be like big signs and like caution and stuff. But there's just like, oh, a creek
0: gap. Like just jump over it. Yeah. Dude, I went to Chatelle. It must've been 10 years ago now. And it had like, just like random corners with huge ditches and rebar sticking up. Uh, I was riding with Boris, uh, a mountain bike photographer. He was behind me, and I come around this corner, and it was just like a super sharp right-hand corner, and there was a massive ditch, and you couldn't really see the corner. And I just hear this, behind me. And I look back, and (laughs) Boris is lifting his head up, and there's just blood all over his face. He's wearing a skate lid. And he, like, put his head under the ground somehow, and he's just full of dirt, But anyway, I know the exact thing you're talking about, Kaz, and it's almost like the bike parks, just everyone just needs to go to Whistler and be like, oh, so we just need to make all our jumps like this. So just so they're consistent, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And Whistler does have a head start, but I think people are, places are starting to catch up or if they're not catching up, they can at least have a different flavor. Like Silver Mountain, they've kind of adopted their own style where everything's like a little off camber, like a little bit rough, but it's kind of got it's different, which makes it cool too. Cause you don't want cookie cutter everything. I don't want every bike park to be the same really, but, uh, yeah. but every bike park to be
0: good, be nice. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. James, do you have a trail that's at the top of your list? I suspect you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely.
3: Um, I think like like if there's like, oh, you can ride one more trail again before you die, I'd probably do the really cliched British thing and just go to Plenty in Morzine and ride that run one more time. Because for me, like the highlight of my year every year growing up was going to Morzine, having that week or two weeks in the Alps with your mates, you rent out like a a, um, a few rooms or whatever, you take your bikes over there. And every morning, the first one you do is Plenty to warm up and every evening, the last thing you do is party laps on Plenty um it's got you know a bit of everything it's a really cool trail like corners it's bits in woods bits out in the open it's got this like steep shoot, 10 percent and stuff and then um, yeah it's just like great memories of riding that and it's barely changed in years and years and years but it's still great
0: i have heard a lot about that trail i've never ridden it i don't think kaz have you been there
1: no i never met a morzine I don't, I'm not British. I don't know if I'm allowed to go. I think <laughs> only Brits go to Morzine. Is that what I hear? <laughs> yeah.
3: It's <laughs> British people, like German people in, in just body armor and nothing else. Like no jersey. Yeah, spandex. Like, <laughs> spandex and body armor. Spandex yeah. and body armor. And then every so often, like just a World Cup racer will like go past you and you'll think you're going real fast and they'll like overtake you around the outside of a berm and you're like, oh, I'm I'm actually terrible at mountain bikes. But it's a good time.
0: <laughs> I did the Port de Soleil one year, many years ago. And I'm pretty sure we ended up in Morzine for part of it. This is a long time ago, and we went off the Port de Soleil course and rode this trail. I don't know the name of it, but it's under the lift, and it was just like these natural bermed corners. And there was about a foot of leaves and maybe 2,000 feet of descending. And it might have been the single best descent I've ever done in my life. And the trail itself wasn't that great, but I think just the combination of the grade and the leaves and everything was orange, and the people I was with, and yeah, something about it made it amazing. It's, pro- it's probably not plenty, but it's pretty good.
3: You know, if it's plenty, because yeah. the break- the breaking bumps—that <laughs> is the, the oh yeah, one no, this didn't have
0: yeah. <laughs> this didn't have any of that on there. So I'm going to share my favorite trail. And I know Casimir's already rolling his eyes back in his head right now. (laughs) I am. But it's a good one, (laughs) I have all sorts of favorite trails. It's not just this one. But I can appreciate Comfortably Numb for what it is. Um, So for those that don't know, Comfortably Numb is in Whistler. But it's very much an old-school XC trail. Super tech. Super slow. It takes anywhere from two and a half to six hours to complete it, depending on what you want to do when you're out there um, and your attitude. And it's basically just a battle to not dab like short, steep technical climbs. Up both say. Ways.
1: It's uphill yeah. both ways. Like there's no way to ride, no matter which way you ride yeah. it, you never get to the downhill. You keep thinking there's yeah. even a point where you see the Whistler village. You're like, Oh sweet. It's going to be all down in the village. And then it goes up. Like, I don't understand how you can, Yeah. it's a yeah. very wild trail. I, I do appreciate it too. Uh, it's not my favorite, but I can, I'm can. i glad it exists.
0: I think you described it perfectly there. Like the climbs, you're climbing up and you're like, yes, a downhill. But the downhill is, they're always short and they're so technical and rough that they might as well beat the climbs as well. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Super techie, physically demanding trail. And our goal is always to clean it without dabbing. I've never managed to not dab. Kaz, on your list of best trails... Are you thinking they have to be more technically challenging? Is that how you're grading your Sounds trails? Brutal. Or are you wanting something where you get way out there?
1: Two years ago, I went up to Revelstoke and I found this trail didn't fine. Like I just heard someone talk about it and I went and rode it. But it's called Martha's Creek. And it has a you basically people shuttle it all the time, but if you do it as a loop, you just ride up a dirt road, but it's 5,000 vert. So you just pedal up like the longest dirt road ever, and then you go down single track, which I like that one. Yeah, and like I also on my list I have the whole enchilada in Moab. I know lots of people have ridden Shh, it. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> that's secrets. a secret trail. <laughs> I know
0: secret. <laughs> don't put it on Strava.
1: <laughs> yeah, but we, I've been riding that trail for. I mean, I probably first rode it somewhere in the early 2000s, and try to get back there once every few years. Just it's super cool. To be in the desert and big long descent. You know, it's not the steepest, not the rowdiest, but it's plenty technical and
0: the views and the whole kind of. It's one of
1: those. You know, the experience of it puts it on my list.
0: Yeah, talking about trails we love is kind of a weird thing, isn't it? Like. We, we want to talk about these trails, but at the same time, we don't want to be like, everybody go ride these trails. Because I think it's fair to say, guys, that we all have trails on our list that we definitely don't want to say where they are <laughs> or the name of the trail. Is there, is there a trail, Alicia, that you can't tell us about where it is or its name, but maybe you could tell us why you like it so much?
2: Sure. I'll tell you about a trail that is unnamed for this podcast and unlocated for this podcast I think I like it because I've never ridden it successfully in one go it's really steep it's not all that hard to get to you climb up just a dirt road for maybe 40 minutes well there are two options you climb one for like an hour-ish or you can cut it in halfway if you climb to the top you get to this high point and you kind of just have to know where to go there's no real defined trail but if you cut through the woods just right, you come out to these weird little, like kind of just scratched in switchbacks, then you drop into a really steep, loose chute that for me is the crux of it. It's just so committing. And Do you ride it every time? I do. Yeah. So like I said, I've never ridden this trail successfully in one go, but I ride every individual section of it and usually kind of stop between and go, oh my God.
0: You brought up being challenged, and I think some of our favorite trails are trails that we can't clean every single time. I I know that's the case for myself. The trails that we see progression on, you know, that you go to and that you're a little bit nervous about, you're like, oh shit, you've been thinking about this drop or this jump, like you know you're going to ride this trail the next day and it has this thing on it and you probably want to do the thing, you know? That's an important factor in trails that we're nervous about, I think, eh?
1: Yeah, there have been trails where like, I feel like I have a pretty good trail memory where I can memorize all the features on a trail. Like, I forget someone's name as soon as I shake their hand, but trails, yeah. like, once I ride it once or twice, it gets pretty burned into my brain. But there's definitely been trails where I'd wake up at night and just be thinking about all the moves and how are they going to link together and You know, I don't do that quite as often anymore. I just feel like trail styles have changed. But back in the kind of more free ridey days, like, I would definitely be like, okay, I got to get that rock move to the right turn, to the step down, to
0: the... And, like, I kind of like that about it. Do you guys think that maybe there's... That's definitely changed, but do you also think that how trails themselves are being built in a lot of places have changed as well, Kaz? Like, you and I, Kaz, we live in the Pacific Northwest we'll always have rowdy trails. There's no doubt about it. But I think it's fair to say that we're also seeing trails that were once pretty rowdy or had rowdy things on them change to be just uh, more rideable for everybody. Do you think that um, you're spending less time thinking about those things because there are less things to think about on the trails that you ride? To
1: some extent, I think trails. I mean, where I live, you know, here in Bellingham and Pacific Northwest, trails have changed as far as like the way they flow. They flow better, and not saying that they're flow trails. But before it'd be like you would do a super steep rock roll to a ninety degree turn, and then you'd go slow, and then you would hit a little weird thing going slow. And I think average speeds have increased a bit, and so the trails have kind of morphed to to match that. So now you have trails with corners that work, and you know, jumps that you don't have to wheelie drop off of and so i think that you know the, the evolution of trail building in, in some ways you know it is easy to say oh all the trails are getting dumbed down but on the other the flip side people have gotten builder better at building and so trails can actually work and like you could do it in one run and it feels good you don't have to like figure out how to navigate super weird stuff and i've got a soft spot for super weird trails but it is also nice to have you know not smash trees as much because the corner didn't work so
3: you think that's to do with the
1: bikes we ride now as
3: well? Like we ride kind of longer, slacker bikes that maybe don't do that kind of awkward, janky tech as well, but they do do the more, you know, bigger berms, flow in and and higher speed stuff better as well.
1: I don't think that. I don't think the trails have been dictated by the bikes as much because it's a lot of these builders aren't getting the latest and greatest bikes. So I don't think it's like I've got this new bike. I'm going to build the trail to match it. I think it's. I don't know. I'm not sure if I agree would you with that one.
0: would you say the bikes generally lead to higher speeds and more capability so i mean maybe why the maybe well the challenge of the trail itself has changed that challenge is maybe more about speed than some do or die move would you guys maybe agree with that i I'd, I'd agree with
1: that i mean I, yeah there are still super gnarly moves but even in my own riding it tends to be less focused on hitting like the biggest jump these days and more on you know having a good clean quick run down something but um but that could be a personal thing i know there's plenty of people out there still you know holding the free ride torch high and looking out for the gnarliest thing we've got you know gnarly trails here too that i can't ride because they're too gnarly so it's not you know the way i ride now might not be representative of how the whole everyone's going but i do think there are yeah i just think overall at least around here the the level of building has improved to a, a really impressive level i guess yeah
0: alicia what do you look for in a trail
2: I think like you pointed out earlier, I do look for it to challenge me. Like we're not looking to be in way over our heads, but also I have a little bit of a gripe with most flow trails, especially Mm. most bike park flow trails, just because Mm -hmm. it doesn't have that same edge. I think we're mostly looking to expand what we can do. And so I like trails that push me to that.
0: Yeah, I would, I would agree with that for sure. I, Oh, man, Kaz, Alicia and James, like sometimes nothing feels better than like you feel like a rock star on a flow trail. You feel like you know what you're doing and and you're amazing and you're going fast through the trees and like, I'm not going to lie, that could be a great feeling. But on the other hand, it's definitely a bummer when you see a great trail, an already existing great trail that's technical, be made less challenging and turned into Something like a flow trail, and I think the real bummer is because that's changing the entire character of the trail. You know, I don't. You know, I'm I'm not out there working on that particular trail, but I just don't like seeing existing trails change to make them easier for new riders. And I know that sounds that sounds kind of dicky for sure, but. I mean, if you need a flow trail, then go ride a flow trail or have a flow trail built or build some stuff on your own, I think would be my argument.
3: Yeah, I don't like to criticize builders because I, mean, I haven't done it for the best part of 10 years. But I think my problem with flow trails is that you only ever kind of get one experience on them. And it's the same yeah. experience every time, like even even if it's raining or it's cold, like it's kind of still the same experience. Whereas something a bit more natural kind of changes over time. And each time you ride it offers a slightly different challenge and you have to adapt your riding to, to what's in front of you. And yeah, that's, that's more the appeal of it to me than going fast and doing jumps, really.
0: 100% agree. I mean, one thing that I always say, Casimir, you've heard me say this a million times, anybody can ride a berm fast. But if it's a flat corner, or a corner with roots and rocks, or loose, or any sort of technical challenge, I think those are big differentiators between riders. And that's the kind of stuff that I like to see on trails. I mean, having said that, I'm going to go ride an amazing flow trail after I wrap up this podcast, and I'm going to have a blast on it. But keep the flow trails to flow trails, right? Don't change existing tech trails. Guys, we should probably talk about trail building as well. Kaz, when is the last time you went out there to do some work? I know you get out there every now and then to do some stuff.
1: Uh, Yeah, been out in a bit. It's summertime, so there's not much you can do. And I'm not going to present myself as a builder at all. I I definitely don't build. I'll go clear some blowdown and kick some drains and stuff, but I'm not a builder. But uh, yeah, huge respect to all the builders out there. And again, uh, but around here, building season is in the winter. It's summertime. It's all dusty and you can't do much. But I did want to mention a shout out to Thad Quinn, who's now working at Silver Mountain um so yeah i think he's the new trail boss there he's doing something and dad built a ton of the good trails around here in bellingham so it's gonna be cool to see what he does over at silver but um yeah he's a guy that lots of people might not know about but he's one of those people that has a good eye can just wander in the woods and all of a sudden that's where the trail should go and it kind of
0: works out so good job dad alicia do you do any trail work
2: it's actually a great question for me today because i was doing trail work last night Oh, so, perfect timing. Oh nice. yeah. Thank, you. Thank you for this.
0: <laughs> just don't ask me, okay?
2: <laughs> yeah, so I do a combination of some trail work with our local organization and some off on my own. And I can't really claim the title of builder. Like, I'm not any sort of mastermind or any sort of super involved trail builder. But I do like to be involved and help shape things. And I'm just really excited that we're getting more trails. And if I can build a trail, that's great. We have a place that that is possible. Um and then there are other trails coming in that are definitely not my own project, but I like to lend a hand.
0: Hey James, I know that you wanted to talk about wood on trails. As soon as I mentioned skinnies, your eyes got really big. I could see them. So let's let's hear it. Give it to me.
3: Yeah, I I I just think there's a a time and a place for them, and that's in Vancouver 20 years ago and it's not in a British trail <laughs> center today um i don't know i guess like every british trail center saw all the dvds coming out of the kind of an offshore free run like oh we need that we need that in our trail you guys can have
0: it take it
3: (laughs) and there's just like random bridges and skinnies all littered all around these trails and um i hate it it just i think it kills the flow and like when it's wet which it is a lot some of them turn into death traps yeah i don't like it at all
0: yeah I, You know what gets me when we don't need the bridge? Like when the trail is going along and then all of a sudden you're on a bridge. But it's not like there's a lake underneath the bridge or a river or like – it's specifically there to make me fall off in front of my friends. That's why the bridge is there. I hate it. <laughs> yeah, I like them. I like them. I've said – I
1: think – yeah – I don't want every trail to turn back the way they used to be, but it is fun once in a while to go ride some weird skinny or like up like where you're at in Squamish. So be like on treasure trail. Oh there's gosh, that yeah. little skinny in the middle. Yeah. You have to turn. then There's a <laughs> tiny drop. Yeah. I like that yeah. stuff. Cause it just reminds me of like the old days, but I'm glad things have progressed past all the stuff. Cause we, we rode some sketchy things that didn't yeah. work as well, but, but they, I don't think they should go away all the way. They need to still be around for like a, it's like a history lesson. Yeah. What about yeah. you, Alicia? What, how do you feel about skinnies?
2: I deeply hate skinnies. Oh, I no, just, we need a
1: field trip to North Shore for everybody.
2: Maybe I have a generational excuse. Like I'm pretty sure you all are significantly older than I am. I just missed oh. the day when they were cool. They never caught on for me. They
0: were never cool, Alicia. <laughs>
2: they were cool.
1: 2002, they were cool.
2: Yeah, I was seven. Six.
0: Oh. It's just not the kind of crash that I want to have. Kaz, I don't want to be going one mile an hour with one foot hanging out. Trying just to stay on this stupid skinny piece of wood, and then I fall over and break an ankle. That's not how I want to go out. You know, learn the,
1: the North Shore bail, where you like vault off your pedal and get over both sides of the
0: bike and land on the other side. Vault off my pedals? Do you know the type of pedals I use? <laughs> yeah, no. you how can't how even clip no what. Yeah, well, that's your problem.
1: You clipped in on skinnies on your cross country bike. That's why it's going wrong.
0: <laughs> let's let's wrap up this discussion with some of the features that we like. So, Alicia, what is your favorite type of feature to see on a trail?
2: I like big drops a lot. Um, well, I, have
0: a, I have a video of you that kind of says otherwise.
2: Yeah, <laughs> Should yeah. Should we put no, it in, in the back. podcast
0: article again? Well,
2: again. <laughs> that one's haunted me since 2016. <laughs> I like to believe I've had some personal growth since then. And it's the internet. It's never love going, love going away. <laughs> no, nothing ever goes away, apparently. A surprising number of people, actually after the last time we brought it up in a podcast, which was too recent, went back and found the original video on my Instagram. So yes. shout out to those people if you're listening.
0: Gold stars.
2: Which
0: you are. <laughs> I'm I'm interested to hear that you are that's your preference. That's your favorite thing to see on a trail. Why why are big drops the favorite thing for you to see?
2: Yeah, I think a little bit of it is Maybe it's a cop-out because most of what you have to do is point your bike and then you're in the air and then you figure it out. So that's a little bit of it. Yeah, but it takes courage. Courage. Yeah, of course. But I also just have, like, maybe my favorite places to ride all just have, like, road gaps and things. And so I've learned to love them because of that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't know. That makes sense.
2: Commitment is really, really hard for me. Yeah. And so (laughs) (laughs) maybe that's why.
0: I like it, Alicia. I like it. That's great. Okay. I wasn't going to say road gaps, but there you go, everybody. Alicia's favorite trail features are road gaps. James?
3: You um, know it's I not skinnies
0: for James.
3: Absolutely. It's not road gaps either. Um, I don't know if it's just the novelty, but like when I went to BC uh, two years ago, I loved doing all the rock rolls. Never done anything like that before. That was really cool. But I think... Um, like shooty, kinda of steep, shooty type features. I quite like that stuff.
0: Alright. And we know that we have Freeride Casimir with us. So he's either gonna say skinnies or really drops.
1: No, well, no, those aren't my favorite features. I still like them, but I think I like techie root sections. Yeah. Almost slower speed, flatter techie root sections, if I had to pick which yes. you might not have expected, but like weird, we just have a trail here that I ride a, a fair bit. It's a, a cross country trail, but kind of old school cross country. And lots of people hate it cause it's hard to find flow and it has plenty of flat routes, but I don't know. It's one of those trails I can go whenever, any time of year and, and have a good time.
0: Yeah, Kaz, I think in that's sort of in the same vein as why I like Comfortably Numb, that sort of awkward slow speed route stuff. Because if you could find the flow there, you could find the flow anywhere, right? Yep, Yeah. exactly. So for me, my favorite thing to see on a trail is flat, not bermed, good corners. You know, if you could, no matter how bad or shitty the ride is going, if you nail one corner, it can completely make a ride. And yeah, it's super rewarding. And that's what I like doesn't happen often enough, I'll tell you that much, Casmer.
1: <laughs> well, it's hard. If you put a flat turn at the bottom of a big steep chute, it doesn't usually work. So that's why you don't have them where you live.
0: Yeah, exactly. Go to, go to Colorado.
1: <laughs> Colorado has so many flat turns, you'll love it. You should probably just move there. It's all the cat so litter. many <laughs> flat turns. Yeah,
0: just like skitter around. Yeah. So it's great. All right. That's it for our discussion about trails. Let's wrap up episode 74 with Comment Gold. And the first one is from PB user Fat Duke. This is a long one. It has 238 upvotes. Jeez. He says, filing cabinet like a skeleton, knocking one out in a biscuit tin, 1990s called and want their frame design back. Something about welds, something about brake checks, something about weight, something about price, farmer's gates, plow for a swing arm. There. Can anybody guess what those comments were on? That
1: sounds like an orange to me
0: yes he was making fun of the single pivot orange orange debuted a new bike it's only got one pivot uh i mean i like their bikes i don't this this fat dude dude it sounds mean
1: i mean they haven't changed in ever why did they I know that's change. why I be, they if the, the geo's water bottle. Good. where do you put the water bottle
0: oh shit i didn't realize that yeah 100 <laughs> percent. they need to change that <laughs> orange get your shit together no water bottles that's not. Yeah, anyways, yeah. That's. You can put
3: it. one on the, the bottom of the down cheek. It's fine. Yeah.
0: That's you know my the first of many times I had giardia. That's how I got giardia. There was cow poo on my nipple. <laughs>
2: mm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, our last comment, gold. This is from Sam Dietley and this is on the the story about Lewis Buchanan breaking his coccyx coccyx breaking the tailbone area. Right? Yeah. So Sam Deatley says, sounds like a pain in the ass. But um, All right, everybody, that is it for the PB Podcast, episode 74. Let us know down in the comments below what you like to see in a trail. What sort of stunts, what sort of corners do you like to see that make for an amazing trail? And what do you guys not like to see? What's the number one way to ruin a mountain bike trail? And we'll see you in the next podcast.